This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. We're going to be in uh, the New Testament book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2 this morning. If you've got a Bible with you and want to go ahead and begin turning there, or maybe you've got uh, the app on your phone and you want to go ahead and open that to the notes section, or just um, feel free to follow along with what will be uh, up on the screen uh, if you want to. So we are continuing this morning uh, in our Reformation series, week three of five weeks, where we're rediscovering the core truths um, of the Reformation in the 16th century that really shaped um, all of how we think um, about faith, Christ, the church, and Christian living today. Um, today. One of the things that you will remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago that the center catalyst under the providence and sovereignty of God for the Reformation. The rumblings were there, the kindling had been gathered, um, if you will, and the, the match that lit it uh, was a man named Martin Luther, a Roman Catholic German monk who had no intention uh, of starting Protestantism, but of confronting what he was coming to understand from his own reading of the Bible were gross inconsistencies and abuses of the faith by the church that he was a part of. He nails up his 95 theses, his statements for for academic discussion and debate on uh, the church door in Wittenberg in 1517, uh, and God uses that to ignite a movement of which we are still a part Um, One of the phrases that eventually came out of the Reformation is reformed and always reforming by the Scriptures. Acknowledging this tendency that we have both individually and corporately as the church to drift. To drift and always needing to be brought back by and through the Word of God. Well, um, if you were here and if you can remember as... This movement grew, as this movement grew, Pope Leo X threw down the gauntlet in 1520. And in a sense said, Luther, unless you recant, you're going to be excommunicated or worse from the church, put outside of the church and in danger of hell itself. Gave him about 60 days when this time was up. Uh, uh, Luther just burned the decree publicly with other people. Uh, He ends up before the officials at the Council of Worms or the Dita Worms, by which he stands solid and says, uh, unless I am convinced otherwise by my conscience through the Word of God, I stand behind everything I've written. I will not recant. I cannot recant. So there it is. Help me, God. Amen. 1521. And following Luther's unwillingness to recant, the Holy Roman Emperor wrote this decree. He said, Luther is an obstinate schismatic and manifest heretic 
who should be harbored by none and read by none on pain of the direst punishment. On pain of the direst punishment. So he, he declared Luther to be a heretic. Now, by the time that the emperor uh, put out this decree, Luther had already decided to get out of Dodge, right? I mean, he was a smart dude. So he'd loaded up in a wagon surrounded by friends and under their protection and left Worms to return to Wittenberg, his sort of uh, a seat of Reformation work and pastoral ministry where he was surrounded uh, by friends and Reformation supporters. In route, though, something happens as uh, the wagon loaded with Luther and his uh, friends begins to enter a narrow wooded gorge, uh, a group of, of highwaymen surround the wagon. Now, highwaymen were for centuries mounted men who would uh, hold up, rob at gunpoint or weapons point before guns were around. Uh, individuals, travelers, convoys of people. These highwaymen surrounded uh, the wagon, forced them to stop, pointing their crossbows at the wagon, and demanded they give up Luther. Luther got out of the wagon. The highwayman uh, grabbed him, snatched him up, and the bandits rode away with Luther in tow. And everyone, as the word quickly got out, knew what had happened, right? They knew that Luther had been seized by order of the Roman Catholic Church so that he could have a quick and quiet death. And they could uh, put to an end this business of Luther and the growing Reformation rebellion that was coming from that. Uh, one man, Abrick Durer, wrote during this time, Oh God, if Luther is dead, who now will teach us the holy gospel so clearly? Again, you and I take such for granted having God's Word ourselves. Being able to have it, to read it, to read it in multiple translations, to study it, to discuss it openly and freely. This was not a time where that was the rule of the road. And this is just what people were meant to think. But the, the kidnappers, this particular group of highwaymen, were uh, in fact in the employ of Frederick the Wise. Frederick the Wise was a German nobleman, an elector, one of, the, one of the men in the council that actually elected the Holy Roman Emperor and to whom the emperor thought Frederick was loyal, but Frederick was not. Frederick was a benefactor of Luther and believed that Luther was absolutely right in what was going on. So Frederick had devised this plan to kidnap Luther and keep him safe without bringing on any of the kind of undue attention that harboring, as Frederick wrote it, the outlaw Luther would bring. So after crisscrossing through uh, the countryside, um, this little band arrived safely at Vortberg, Vortberg Castle, with Luther in tow late at night. Uh, Vortberg Castle was Frederick's stronghold in the German province of Saxony. You can go there today. Uh, the mountaintop castle is still there in north central Germany. It juts up um, eye-poppingly nearly 800 feet above uh, the community surrounding it. It was an, uh, an impenetrable, really, force at that time. And there for over 300 days, Luther stays. 
If you go there today, if you're traveling overseas and you're in Germany and you want to go there, uh, you can see the little room where Luther studied, still with furniture that Luther used in there. You can still see uh, ink stains that uh, are there from Luther throwing his, uh, his ink holder when he felt annoyed or extremely attempted by Satan up against the wall. Of course, they've touched it up a bit across the years, so make sure you can see those. Um, but, but the stains, nonetheless, are underneath there on the wall. You can see the little narrow bedroom. Uh, just off one side where Luther slept. He made this his home for nearly a year and continued reading the Bible and writing. Reading the Bible and writing. He translated the New Testament for the first time directly from the Greek into the German language of the people of the day. He grew his hair and beard out and he wore the clothing of a knight. Luther, uh, in a sense, Luther, the outlaw, had disappeared. And Sir George, as he would be known for almost all of that year, is who he would become, living, in a sense, in exile. But later in 1522, Luther would return to Wittenberg because he was driven by a desire to continue his work of reformation and unconcerned about whatever threats were being made by the Holy Roman Emperor, or anyone else within the church that Luther so dearly loved but believed had gotten so far off from biblical faith. Now, as you can see, Luther and his contemporaries lived with a very different kind of conviction and passion for their faith than often we do today. And the latch uh, if you will, on the door that opened all things to the Reformation, we look at this morning this idea of sola fide, faith alone, faith alone, that it is our faith in Jesus Christ, not anything of our doing or working, that opens the door to us being justified by God or justified before God. What I tried to do last week was help us understand that we are in need of this because we are not just sinners. We are so sinful that we cannot get ourselves out of this mess. You with me? That we can't just make good choices out of it. And there's so much at stake here. One of the things that I just didn't have time uh, to bring into the message this morning, maybe I can make it a little bit into next week or to the final one um, two weeks from today, is the great um, honesty and um, teaching that both Luther and John Calvin brought around this issue of assurance in our faith. Both of them understood deeply the wrestling that happens in the hearts of believers who have been, by God's grace, um, through faith in Christ, declared righteous, a legal declaration. You are viewed as righteous, you are treated as righteous, and yet still sinful, still unrighteous. Now, how many of us in here would say that we don't know that tension? That we don't ever or have never struggled before God to believe that we, we are who God says we are in Christ while knowing the sinful desires, the temptations we're so susceptible to. This issue of sola fide, faith alone, is of utmost importance in understanding what we mean when we say faith. What does it mean to have faith in Christ? I, I'm struggling right now just in uh, my life as a Christian, as a pastor, with whether or not to keep using the phrase believer 
Because when I say that, it is often what I'm meaning when I say believer, someone who's placed their, their allegiance and their trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, is often not what modern Americans hear. They hear someone who believes in God. Everybody's a believer. Well, yeah, they, they believe in God, but this or that, but this, that, or the other. One of my kids was telling me someone had, uh, they were talking with the other day, he said, oh, I'm a Christian, just not an active one. And I told, my, I told my child, there's no such thing. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not active. Right? Because a Christian is a disciple of Jesus, and a disciple is a learner, a follower. Someone who is, uh, in a sense, enrolled in the school of someone. Actively seeking to learn and to live out the teachings of that person. John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion gives a, a good definition of faith, the kind of faith we're talking about, and why it is really when you understand this definition of faith that we struggle. He says, now, we shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it, and here we go, if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence to us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Calvin says that the, the kind of faith that is a saving faith that we see in Scripture is the kind of faith that sees God as gracious and kind and loving toward us because of or built on the truth that this disposition of God is freely given to us. Through his promise in Christ. In other words, it is a faith that takes God at his word. It is a faith that trusts him and what he says. And this truth has been revealed, Calvin says, both to our minds and our hearts. It's been revealed to our minds in the sense that we, we come to understand it and believe it cognitively. It's been revealed to our heart in the sense that it has been sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit has, has given this gift to us and helped us obtain it, understand it, and hold on to it. Sola fide, faith alone. Faith alone. And what, what Luther was driving at and Calvin and um, John Owen and, and so many of these others, but the Reformation is so beautifully, so beautifully seen and understood um, in the writings and actions of Luther and John Calvin, though there are things that, where they didn't go far enough, they didn't get exactly right, thus it is for all of us. But what gifts they are and their writings are to us today, but they're coming straight from the Scriptures. In a sense, the church in their day got in big trouble when they encouraged Calvin and Luther to read and teach the Bible. Because that they did. And it changed everything. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. You'll remember uh, that there's an issue in the churches in the region of Galatia about what it means to be part of the body of Christ and what has to happen for you to be accepted. Is faith alone enough or must you have faith alone and undergo the Jewish ceremonial rite of circumcision? the Jewish ceremonial rite of circumcision, and then you're included. 
Uh, and the, the, the verses we're about to look at are right on the heel of Paul describing his confrontation with Peter, who had, uh, in a sense, relented under the pressure of legalists who'd come from Jerusalem, and he was uh, not willing to eat with uncircumcised Gentile believers. Paul confronts him. He tells of his confrontation with him. And then in verses really 15 through 21, we'll only look at 15 and 16, but in 15 through 21, he expounds why it is that he confronts Peter so harshly. Verses 15 and 16. We... That is we, that is uh, me, Peter, Barnabas, those of us who are Jewish disciples and apostles are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, um, some of your translation will have quotes around Gentile sinners because uh, Paul is kind of, he's having a little linguistic fun here with this idea, with this idea that there's somehow something special about them who'd been uh, born as Jews before God that in a way isn't special about Jews who place their faith in Jesus Christ because Paul knows good and well he's a sinner. And he knows good and well Peter and all the rest of them are all sinners. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, quote-unquote, and yet. And yet, because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. Now I'm going to come back and we're going to look at this in just a second, but here, Paul, who described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees, if anyone could be saved by righteous acts, it was Paul before the law innocent. This is how Luther had described himself. He said, if you could have been saved by sheer monkery, made right with God and justified, I certainly would have been justified. He was saying, I was the monkest monk you'd ever met. When it came to prayer, when it came to study, when it came uh, uh, to confession, I monked better than any other monk around. And yet, by God's goodness, my heart testified against me that I was still a sinner and I knew it. That my desires weren't for God, my desires were for myself and what God could grant me, this release of guilt and conviction. My affection, I didn't feel affectionate toward God. I didn't delight in him, and nothing I could do would change that. Paul is in line, if you read what he says in Philippians chapter 3, with Luther there. Or rather, Luther would have been in line with Paul. Paul did come somewhat before Luther. But Paul's saying, hey, if it could have been done by doing, I would have done it. I would have done it. I was just that good. And then we get here. And in case works of the law... It's confusing for you. Let's read back through this again. And you could just input here almost obeying God's commands. Obeying God's commands. And yet because we know that a person is not justified by obeying God's commands, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed 
in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by obeying the commands of God. Because by obeying the commands of God, no human being will be justified. If you read all of Paul, he says, you're not going to be justified for two reasons. That's still not good enough and you can't do it. Even if you could obey it all, you would still have a rebellious heart. That you can't change. That you can't fix. That you can't will away. But you and I both know good and well, you can't obey it all. You can't even obey all the traffic laws we have. Right? I've said many times, but uh, stop signs in the parking lot of a grocery store inside it are always a reminder to me of how weak we are as human beings. That, That they have to put stop signs up to keep people who are going 10 miles an hour from running into one another. All right? We can't do it. It's not just that we wouldn't, it's that we can't. And vice versa, even if we could, we wouldn't. Because we love sin that much. We love it. But Paul makes this profound argument here that it is not through our working, our striving, our obedience, our keeping God's commands that we're justified but by faith in Jesus Christ. And it, it should go without saying, but it doesn't in our time, that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you are not justified. Jesus says the wrath of God, the wrath of God the Father remains on you. It's not even coming for you. It just simply remains there. It is there, increasing in proportion as you continue to choose yourself over God and rebel before Him. Repenting Repenting, agreeing with God about your sinful nature, experiencing spirit-led sorrow and conviction over it, uh, is not just an idea or an option God throws out. It's a command. We're commanded to repent of our rebellion. Listen to how Thomas Cranmer, the, uh, the author of the Book of Common Prayer and English Reformer, what he says about This passage, consider diligently these words, without works, by faith only, freely we receive remission of our sins. What can be spoken more plainly than to say that freely without works, by faith only, we obtain remission of our sins? Now, part part of why this matters is because so much of the culture that exists in church today intentionally or unintentionally communicates to us this way. Hey, it's about grace, right? It's you're saved by faith or by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then what we hear is now after that, you got to buckle down and work real hard, right? You got to quit your cussing. You got to quit your drinking. You got to quit your watching PG-13 things. Only G's. And it is for sure the truth that obedience grows out of justification, that sanctification, the, the transformation of a human life more and more into the image of Christ is a defining characteristic of those who have truly, truly encountered Christ in a saving way. But 
you can't produce that simply by anything you do. You can't produce it. God has to produce the change as you're willing to come before him and cooperate with the work of the Spirit in your life. God brings the change. Now, why really does this matter today? Does it matter today? Let me give you a couple of really concrete examples why I believe it absolutely matters today. Uh, On January 30th of 2004, there was a gathering of over 500 um, bishops and Episcopalian um, leaders in uh, Reston, Virginia at the Hyatt Regency. Um, Just a few months before, uh, an Episcopal diocese in New Hampshire had ordained the first openly homosexual bishop into the Episcopal Church. And what I, what I mean when I say openly homosexual, I don't mean open about his inclination, his attraction toward people of the same sex. I mean openly homosexual in his sexual lifestyle. Should be just as stunning to you as if the church had elected an openly sexually active heterosexual bishop who was not containing his sexual gratification and activity within the bounds of marriage between one man and one woman. At that gathering, at that gathering, at the Hyatt Regency that Friday, Episcopal Bishop Peter James Lee of the Virginia Diocese said this, if you must make a choice between heresy and schism or division, always choose heresy. If you must make a choice between heresy, between believing and accepting wrong doctrine and schism or division in the church, always choose heresy. Can I tell you, he's 100% wrong. It is right doctrine that unites us in Christ. We don't simply get to pick whatever we think is true or right at a given time. This is one of the major, major theological battles of our day. In fact, I would venture to say that nearly all of the major theological battles of our day right now deal with the issue of human sexuality, marriage, and gender within the Christian faith. What does the Bible teach? And are we willing to stand on that and do so in love and humility, but stand none the least? Bishop Lee was wrong, 100% wrong. He misunderstands doctrine, misunderstands Scripture, and misunderstands the nature of the church. And the Episcopal Church in the United States has declined more than 20% since 2004 in that decision. God will not honor the open rebelliousness of his church. He will not honor us when we say, look, we confess you as God and Savior, but we just, we don't agree with some of your teaching. You don't understand our world, right? I mean, this is not the black and white world of the rifleman. This is modern days. And, and, and we understand things, Lord, that maybe you just don't. It's absurd, but it is all throughout our churches right now. 
This issue matters today. It matters today. If Bishop Lee had held to the five solas of the Reformation, starting with sola scriptura, he could never have gotten here. The Episcopal Church could never have gotten here. But here we are. This is another demonstration of uh, how weak our theology of sin is. That's why last week's message matters so much. We don't think it's very serious before God. One more demonstration of why this matters today comes from Michael Green in a, a great uh, just sort of introductory book to the Reformation called The Unquenchable Flame. Green says that the reason Luther posted his 95 theses at, at the time that Luther did, in the time of his own development, was because he believed in the way the indulgences were being sold. He believed the way the indulgences were being sold cheapened repentance. And at the time, repentance was at the heart of Luther's thinking. How is it that, that we lay ourselves as sinners before God in a right way? It had all come about through a deepening sense of the radicality of human sin. Luther had begun to see, listen to this, don't miss this. Luther had begun to see the extreme naivete of the medieval teaching that God will not gr deny grace to those who do their best. I am telling you this morning, church, this is the understanding of God and redemption in our nation and in most of our churches when professing Christians are pushed that God will not deny grace to do to those who do their best. That jumped off the page and wrapped itself around my brain when I read it because I hear it in one way or another over and over and over and over and over. One of the little known kind of... Um, collegiate secrets of pastors is that we never bury anyone destined for hell. Because though we may be evangelical pastors and evangelical pastors of Baptist churches who love to talk about hell, maybe not us, but just people, no one's friend or loved one when it comes time for a funeral is going to hell. They, they always come with you in, in that broken morning with all the reasons why. They were baptized when they were two and a half, Right? They were, they were an altar boy for seven minutes before uh, they became a Baptist. And then a year in Awanas. Right? year in Awanas. The doctrine of hell just falls completely fat, flat when it comes funeral time. It does. Again and again and again and again and again I've seen this. And you struggle to be honest before God and people and have the right tone and say the right things at a funeral where the person in the box gave no evidence at all, none of a life changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This medieval teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that God will not deny grace to those who do their best is absolutely street Christianity in the U.S. today. And when pressed, studies are showing solid research again and again. It is the real belief of professing Christians sitting in churches Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. We don't understand sin. We, we don't understand the seriousness of sin. And we don't understand the righteousness and the holiness of God. This whole Reformation discussion, Sola Scriptura, 
Solus Christus, sola fide. It is relevant and needed today. We need to know that it's not by our works. It's not, it's not by our doing good enough or doing our best. It's like when, uh, when someone says something that you know to be absolutely absurd. Let's just think about it within the realm of faith, though it works in any realm. Um, and you're kind of having a, a discussion about it with a few people. And they say, but they, they do believe that sincerely. That doesn't matter. I might believe I'm sincerely in France right now, but I'm not. Thank you, Lord. Sincerity doesn't make something true. We got people in our country right now, you know this, who sincerely believe they're cats or pumpkins or whatever. It doesn't make it true. And to acknowledge it and affirm it not only makes us intellectually depleted and immature, it is not helpful, it's harmful. It's like if you have children who refuse to brush their teeth month after month and you say, that's okay, teeth are strong. That's absurd. It's absurd. We are called to be people of truth. Christians are called to be men and women of truth in all areas of our life. And this is harder to be, not, not so much when it comes to biblical truth, but in our nation when it comes to making decisions and figuring out what's right and wrong. I, I remember uh, getting texts from friends of mine around the country saying, hey, what's going to happen with this Georgia Senate race? And I was like, I don't know. I'm sure it'll be a runoff, which it is. Um, we got to fix this system, by the way. Um, but at least we're not Arizona, right? Um, how embarrassing. But here's the thing. I said, I don't know, but I don't trust any campaign ads that one candidate puts out toward the other, and I don't trust any campaign ads that the other candidate or his packs or his hidden people put out against it. I don't trust any of that. So it takes work sometimes in our day to get, to get down to facts and truth. But we're called to be people of truth in our faith and beyond. An important reminder this morning, though, as we're speaking on this idea of sola fide, by faith alone, right? Not faith in, in actions, not faith in baptism, not faith in anything else, is that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. We can't lose what we talked about last week, in Christ alone. It's not just faith in a good God. It's not just faith in God's church. It is faith alone in Christ alone. This is what Paul says here and what the New Testament writers say over and over and over and over and over. Verse 16, yet because we know we who were born Jews, born with the gift of God's law, and yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith. By faith in whom? In Jesus Christ. Even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. One of the most beautiful examples of, of this idea in uh, church life is reading uh, the, the letters and some of the writings of uh, Bethan Lloyd-Jones, who was Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife, the great 20th century uh, British preacher. Bethan says, it was several years under the preaching of Martin before I experienced a true conversion. Now, she'd been brought up in church. She had done all the things. She'd done Bible drill. She knew what kind of dress to wear. She didn't swear. She didn't dip. She didn't chew. She didn't drink. 
She was a good little church girl, i.e. Christian girl. But it was only after two or three years under her husband's preaching that she, was, uh, that she became aware of the gravity of her own personal sin before God and repented of that sin and confessed her need for a Savior and her trust in Christ Jesus alone as her personal Lord and Savior. I think our churches are filled with Beth and Lloyd Joneses. With men and women who grew up in church, and at some time somebody told them that's Jesus into their heart, and they did. They're getting a little spiritually sensitive at that time, or at least coming to understand a little bit more about what mom and dad believed, and they wanted that too, and what they'd seen. And then years and years and years and years and years and years go by, and there's not an understanding of this need to be justified before God by faith alone in Christ alone. Look at Ephesians, just a couple of pages over if you're in your Bible to the right. Ephesians chapter 2, a verse and passage that will be familiar to many of us. Paul fleshes this out a little bit so well, uh, uh, a passage we'll use a little bit this week and some next week as we look at sola gratia, grace alone. For you, you uh, Ephesian Christians is what Paul is saying. For you, church members, are saved by grace through faith. By grace here is this idea that Calvin talks about. By the benevolence of God turned toward you through faith. And this is not of yourselves, not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. Well, is it, is it the grace of God or the faith that is not from ourselves? Yes. Yes. This is what Paul's saying right here when he clarifies. Not from works so that no one can boast. If the act of faith came strictly from you, if you generated it, it would be your working response apart from God. Of your own. And Paul says, no. You're saved by grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. None of this is of yourselves. Salvation belongs to God alone. It is God's gift. Grace is God's gift. Faith is God's gift. Salvation is God's gift. Not from works so that no one, no one can boast. So that we stand before God one day in the presence and glory of Christ having been at that point not only declared righteous, but made righteous. Made righteous. And we will not boast about anything. We will not boast about anything. Paul goes on, For, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Luther would jump on this train heavily and say, oh, I am all for good works, but good works are fruit of a good tree, going back to Jesus' teaching. They don't make a tree good. An apple tree is not an apple tree because it bears apples. An apple tree bears apples because it is an apple tree. And so Luther says, I don't dispute good works at all. I dispute the order that the church has put them in. 
that it is in our cleaning up of ourselves, our working toward repentance and toward a sanctifying and justified life that Luther would have none of. Tom Schreiner is a distinguished professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, great theologian, New Testament scholar. He writes in his book, Faith Alone, the Doctrine of Justification, as he's quoting book three of of Calvin's Institutes and summarizing a section in there on this issue of faith being um, in Christ Jesus and not a work itself. says, Calvin is careful to say, however, that faith shouldn't be construed as a work, as if faith itself justifies us. For if such were the case, then faith would be a good work that makes us right with God. Instead, faith is the instrument or the vessel that joins us to Christ. And ultimately, believers are justified by Christ as the crucified and risen one. Faith is the instrumentality of God by which you are are joined, by which you are brought into union with Christ, where you belong to Him. You're in Him. Shrina goes on in a summary statement and says, Justification is by faith alone because it looks to Christ alone for forgiveness of sins and salvation. Right? The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your salvation. The author of it and the perfecter. It doesn't mean that you and I have nothing to do. It doesn't mean that we don't play a participatory role in our own sanctification and in bringing the kingdom of God as we're taught to pray for from heaven to earth. It's simply saying that the one who saves us is also the one who changes us. The one who saves us is the one who seals us for that coming day so that we can experience assurance. That was one of the areas where the Catholic Church pushed back so hard on Luther and Calvin was on this idea that believers could really have any assurance, right? Because if, if we play any part at all in our salvation and in our sanctification, really a decisive role is what I mean, then we can't have assurance because you're up and you're down all day every given week. It just depends on the moment. Just depend. And if you think you're having a good day, there are probably people in your life we could ask about you. They would say, well, he didn't have a good day before he left this morning, I can tell you that. Finally, I'll close with a quote from Luther. It, it ought to be the first concern of every Christian to lay aside all confidence in works to lay aside all confidence in works and grow in the knowledge, not of works, but of Christ Jesus, who suffered and rose for us, should say for us. Who suffered and rose for us. When When we set our gaze on Christ Jesus, When we set our gaze on the glory and the goodness and the grace of God, our hearts are changed. Our affection for God is stirred up. We find victory over 
sin that we can't seem to find when we're focused on the sin and we're trying as hard as we can to deal with it. We need to deal with sin in our life. We deal with sin in our life most effectively by focusing on the beautiful face of Jesus Christ and on his love for us. That transforms us. That changes us. Faith alone. There's no other way to come to God through Christ but by faith. But by believing what God said and saying, God, I may feel this way or feel that way, but I am trusting you. I am trusting you. And the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that anyone, anyone who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior does so by the Holy Spirit. Does so because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So if this morning you're able to say, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Not just mine. He is Lord of all the world and Savior of all who will come to him in faith. The Bible says you don't do that on your own. You do that because the Holy Spirit has given you the gift of that profession, of that declaration. Lean into it this morning. Trust Him. Let me ask you to stand. And I want to ask you where you're struggling in your relationship with God this morning. Where are you struggling to believe and to trust God? Where are you struggling that you belong to God, not begrudgingly on His part, but delightfully and joyfully on His part? That when you fall down and stumble in your walk, it's not the heart of God to kick you in the side. Jesus would say, for who among you as a parent would, would do that to your child? It's God's heart to pick you up and say, man, you were doing so good. You can do it. And our part to say, you're right, I was doing good and I fell. Thank you for picking me up. Thank you for helping me get stronger. May that be our plea this morning in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.